Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Have you ever had somebody say to you, there's no evidence for God? I mean, we don't see God. We can't test him like in a test tube, as a scientist might. So how can we even know that God exists? You know, the Russians beat the United States to space uh, back in the late 50s. They put a astronaut up there, Yuri Gagarin, uh, who uh, went up. I did an orbit or two around the Earth in uh, Sputnik, I think it was. And when Yuri came back to the United, well, not the United States, he came back to the USSR. When he came back to the, uh, the Soviet Union, uh, the head of the Soviet Union at that time was a prime minister by the name of Nikita Khrushchev. And Khrushchev said, Yuri went up into the heavens and he didn't see God up there. So there's no God, basically. That was his conclusion. You know, the the atheistic Soviet regime. Well, what mistake was Khrushchev making? He was expecting God to be somehow inside the universe, a part of the universe. It would be like... um, Many of the new atheists today, when they say, well, you know, God, uh, I just go one God further than you. You don't believe in Zeus. You don't believe in Thor. You don't believe in Ra. You don't believe in all of these these gods that have been uh, in history that many people have believed. I'm an atheist and you're an atheist, too, about those gods. I just go one God further. Well, what's the big mistake made here? The big mistake is is equating beings which are inside the universe created beings and of course they're mythological beings they they're not really true but even if people thought they were true they're still created beings ra and zeus and thor they're inside the universe they're like superheroes they're not like yahweh who is spaceless timeless and immaterial who created the universe And if those beings, those other gods did exist, they would have to be created by the spaceless, timeless, immaterial, infinite, completely actualized being. In other words, the God of the universe is not inside the universe. He's he transcends the universe. And so when Yuri Gagarin goes off into space. And he doesn't see God up there. You shouldn't expect to see God up there because he's not a physical being. It would be like opening up the hood of your Ford Mustang and expecting to see Henry Ford under the hood. No, Henry Ford's thoughts are in the Ford Mustang or whoever created the Ford Mustang or the Model T. If you want to go back to Henry Ford, his thoughts are in the Model T, but he's not the Model T. Similarly, God's thoughts and design are in the universe, but he's not the universe. In other words, when people say that we we don't have any evidence for God, what you ought to say is, first of all, what do you mean by that? No evidence for God. What kind of evidence are you expecting? Are you expecting to see God like you would see another human being? 
or like you'd see Zeus or Thor if they existed? No, we, the way we know God exists is we reason from effect to cause. We have a creation. We know there must be a creator. We have a moral law written on our hearts. We know there must be a moral law giver. And there are several effects that point back to some form of intelligence. The creation of the universe is one. If space, matter, and time had a beginning, whatever created space, matter, and time must transcend space, matter, and time. In other words, the cause must be spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. Also powerful to create the universe out of nothing. Personal in order to choose to create. Also intelligent, because if you have to make a choice, which you do if you're going to create, you not only have to be a person, you have to be an intelligent person. You have to have a being that has the ability to make choices. When you see design in the universe through the fine-tuning, which appears to be the the cause of the fine-tuning, appears to be design. When you see that, that's an effect of God. It's not God directly. It's an effect of God. When you see that we have the ability to reason, why do we have the ability to reason? Because molecules bump into one another? No, there's more to it than that. Our minds are made in the image of the great mind, the spaceless, timeless, immaterial mind. There's information found in life. There's a code, a software program, over 3 billion letters long in every one of your 40 trillion cells. Where do codes come from? Where do programs come from? Well, programs come from programmers. Codes come from coders. Messages come from minds. You have the longest message we've discovered in every one of your cells. That code, that software, that program comes from a programmer. We don't see the programmer. Because the programmer is not a physical being. It's an immaterial being. So we're reasoning from effect to cause. We have these moral laws written on our hearts. We know that torturing babies for fun is wrong. We know that sacrificing yourself to save somebody else is right. That's the ultimate form of love. Why? Because there's a moral standard out there. That moral standard is God's nature. We don't see the standard. Why? Because love and justice and evil are not physical things. They're immaterial things. Even Satan metaphysically is good. What do I mean by that? I mean, he has good qualities. He has mind, emotion, and will. The problem is, is he uses them for evil purposes. He's trying to get good things through evil means. And when you think about it, when you do evil, evil is actually, when you do evil, you're not doing evil to get evil. You're doing evil to get good. You're trying to get good things, typically sex, money, or power. But evil itself is an immaterial privation of an immaterial good standard. So we know that there must be a standard of good if we're going to say something's evil, because evil presupposes a good standard. Darkness is the absence of light. You don't have a light switch in your house that says darkness. Darkness is just there. It's the absence of light. So these things point back to an immaterial, spaceless, timeless mind. Our ability to do science, same thing. In fact, the very natural laws which we study to try and discover cause and effect in the world point back to a mind that set up those laws and keeps them going in the direction in which they go in a very precise way. 
So our very ability to do science presupposes an orderly universe, and that orderly universe presupposes an orderer. You wouldn't even know what random was unless you knew what order was, and you wouldn't know what order was unless there was an orderer. These things are all immaterial qualities that presuppose, in some sense, a cause. They have a cause. If we're going to take the law of causality seriously, these effects have a cause. So a reason from effect to cause. You're not going to find God in the universe any more than you're going to find Henry Ford in a Mustang, in the engine of a Mustang. Now, if God wants to get more of our attention, however, he may send somebody to the universe in a physical form, i.e. Jesus, who is 100% human, but also has a divine nature as well. So he may do that. And when Jesus said, when you see me, you see the father in terms of his qualities, his moral qualities, but you don't see the father in the sense that you see him with your physical eye because the father, by definition, is spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. So is there evidence for God? Yes. If we're going to be scientists and we're going to try and figure out what effect or what cause caused a particular effect, we've got plenty of effects. We've got the universe itself being an effect. We've got reason being an effect. We have the information found in DNA as an effect. We have moral standards in effect. We have the ability to do science as an effect, the natural laws. These are all effects which point back to a cause, i.e. God. Now, how do you know it's God, the God of the Bible? Well, we don't yet. We'd have to do more research and figure out if Jesus rose from the dead, and if Jesus rose from the dead, then whatever he teaches is true. Jesus taught the entire Old Testament is the Word of God, and He promised the New Testament. So that's how we get to Christianity being true. But the overall point is, you don't see God directly, you see His effects. All right, Frank Turk with you. Back in two minutes. Don't go away. Thank you for listening to the Cross-Examined Podcast. This material is made available to you for free by the contributions of listeners like you. If you wish to support future podcasts, just go to crossexamine.org and click on the Donate button, or simply use the Donate feature directly on our app. Thanks. If you're low on the FM dial looking for National Public Radio, go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. That's our intent anyway. You're listening to Cross-Examined with Frank Turek of the American Family Radio Network. Our website, crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with the D on the end of it, .org. Also, like our Facebook pages, crossexamined.org and DR Frank Turek. If you want to get uh, the streaming that will occur when we go on college campuses, we've got a couple in early September in Missouri, I believe, couple of colleges uh, coming up, so you want to be a part of that. But you got to like those Facebook pages in order to uh, ensure that you get the uh, feed. Now, before the break in the first 10-minute segment, we were talking about the fact that, yes, there is evidence for God because we reason from God or, for, or to God from the effects. We reason from effect to cause. And uh, for those of you that uh, may have read my book, Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make their case. You may have noticed in the first 10 minute segment, I actually went through the acronym that that book is built around. What's the acronym? Crimes, C-R-I-M-E-S. And each letter stands for a different aspect of reality that uh, shows that A, God exists, it seems to me, and B, that atheists often steal some of these things from God in order to say God doesn't exist. For example, uh, the C uh, in the in the book stands for causality. It could also stand for creation. We know there's a, 
a law of cause and effect out there, and we know that creation occurred. Even atheists are admitting that space, matter, and time had a beginning out of nothing. Well, if space, matter, and time had a beginning out of nothing, whatever created space, matter, and time, if we've, as we talked about earlier, must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, intelligent, uh, and, uh, and uh, personal in order to create something. So C stands for creation or causality. R stands for reason. The very fact that we have the ability to reason shows that our ability seems to be better explained, not by just molecules bumping around in our heads, but by the idea that we have a mind. We don't just have a brain, we have a mind. And our mind is built uh, in order to know truth. It's built in the prototype, or it's, I should put it another way, it's built as a reflection of the great mind, God's mind. That is That better explains our ability to reason than just saying that our mind is the result of a non-rational process that didn't have us in mind. In fact, John Lennox famously asks his atheist buddies, you know, where did your mind, where did your brain come from? And they basically say, well, my brain is the result of a purposeless process that didn't have any end in mind. And Lennox looks at him and says, and you trust it? I mean, why would you trust something that was built not by any design, but was just built in a random way uh, by chance? You, you, you wouldn't. Also, information deals with the uh, the data in DNA, which is genetic code, basically, every time a code, uh, I discover a code, there must be a coder. Every time you discover a software program, there must be a programmer. Every time you see a message, you know there's a mind behind it. Also, M stands for morality. There's a moral standard out there. That moral standard is grounded in God's nature. If there is no God, every activity is merely the result of or I should say, is, is, can merely only be judged by human opinion. It's just your opinion against somebody else's opinion, your opinion against Hitler's opinion, your opinion against ISIS's opinion. If there is no standard, no moral standard beyond humanity, then everything's reduced to human opinion. And all of us know that's just nonsense. That torturing babies for fun is really wrong. It's not just my opinion. It's not just your opinion. It's really wrong. Uh, evil stands, uh, the E in crime stands for evil. And as I say, this doesn't directly point to God. It, it points to morality, which then points to God, because nothing would be evil unless there was good, and good wouldn't exist in an objective way unless God existed. So evil actually boomerangs back to show that God does exist. And S, of course, in crime stands for science. Our ability to do science is built on the fact that the universe is orderly. There's reliable cause and effect. There are reliable natural laws which do the same thing over and over again. And those laws must be put in place and sustained by a lawgiver. Now, if you go through the book, Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case, you can get a robust argument for each one of those points. And you will also see that sometimes atheists are stealing these realities in order to argue against God. The easiest one to illustrate is evil. They'll say there's too much evil in the world, so there can't be a good God. The problem is, if something really is evil, then God exists. Not because God is doing evil, because again, Evil wouldn't be really objectively wrong, or it wouldn't be objective evil unless it was an objective standard of good, and an objective standard of good only exists if God exists. So evil actually is a backhanded way of showing God does exist. Evil doesn't disprove God. It may prove there's a devil, but it actually shows that God does exist. So when atheists are trying to say evil shows there is no God, they're actually stealing from God to argue against them. That's kind of what goes on in the book. Now, I'm not suggesting that there aren't other ways to know God, for example, the witness of the Holy Spirit, 
but that still would be an effect. The Holy Spirit would still be an effect, uh, or the cause of the effect, I should say. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm not suggesting that's not a legitimate way either. I'm simply saying that when it comes to theism, these are some of the ways you can identify the fact that a theistic God exists. Now, uh, next week, we're going to look at the debate I had with Michael Shermer in California. Now, if you're in California right now, Saturday, August 25th, tonight, I'm going to be at, at Valley Church in San Jose, California at 6 p.m. with my friend Neil Mom, and We're going to do some apologetics TED Talks. It's open to everybody, 6 p.m., Valley Church. And then tomorrow, I'll be at uh, South Valley Community Church. You got Valley Church tonight, South Valley Community Church in Gilroy, which happens to be the garlic capital of the world. It's about 45 minutes or so south of San Jose. I'll be there at 9 a.m. And then 10 a.m., I'll be at the Hollister campus of South Valley Community Church. Then at 11, I'll be back at the Gilroy campus of South Valley Community Church. I guess they shuttle, shuttle the speakers around between these campuses. So if you're anywhere in the Bay Area, uh, tonight or tomorrow, love to see you at either of those two events. Go to crossexamine.org, click on uh, calendar, uh, actually events, and then you'll see Frank Turek calendar there. So if you uh, want to be a part of uh, those events, go there to check it out. Now, I want to get to some of your questions that you've uh, wrote via email, and our email address is hello at crossexamined.org. I've got several questions. I'm sorry I can't get to all of them. Some I, I try and respond to via email. Others I try and uh, do here on the program. Some I just can't get to at all. I apologize if I don't get to your question. But John writes in, John uh, Feltz writes in and says, I love the podcast. I've actually seen you speak when I was a teenager and when I was in college. Your work encouraged me and inspired me greatly. Thank you for uh, asking questions. My question is, in regard to apostasy, we pride ourselves on being a religion of choice, but... As I read the Old Testament, I see there are many instances in many books where unbelievers were called to be killed. How does this line up with New Testament teaching? Is this a fair parallel? Thank you for addressing. Okay, I don't know exactly which particular passage you're talking about, but I'll take one of the more difficult ones, say the killing of the Canaanites. Now, we've spoken about this issue many times on this podcast. In fact, we've devoted entire podcasts to this issue. Uh, go back and listen to... Uh, the podcasts that I've had with Paul Copan, who wrote the book, Is God a Moral Monster? And a couple also with Clay Jones, who wrote uh, the book, uh, "Does Why Does God Allow Evil, I believe. It's on my shelf here somewhere. In any event, yeah, there it is. Why Does God Allow Evil by Clay Jones. Um, Paul teaches down in, uh, I think, Palm Beach University in, in Florida. And I think, uh, let's see. Clay is out at Biola in California. And they have differing views on this, by the way. Let's take the Canaanite example or the Canaanite issue. Paul believes that the, the commands to kill the Canaanites, say in Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter seven, are hyperbolic commands. They're ancient Near East language, which they're exaggerated ways of saying, defeat these people, drive them out of the land. It doesn't mean to kill every single person. And why does he say this? Well, it was common in other ancient Near Eastern literature. And also, if you read the context of Deuteronomy chapter seven, it says something like wipe everybody out and then don't intermarry with them. And you're saying, wait a minute, well, how can you intermarry with a, with a people you had just exterminated? So he's saying they're exaggerated commands. Clay Jones, on the other hand, says, no, these are literal commands. Well, let's take Clay Jones's position here as the, the proper position. I don't know which is proper. I, I seem to lean toward what Copan is saying, but let's just take the harder problem. Let's say God commanded these people killed. Now, does God command them 
to be killed because they were unbelievers. Is that why? No. It's actually not because they were unbelievers. It's because they were practicing gross immorality, including child sacrifice to their molten hot metal god, Molech. They'd heat this metal god up and the arms of this metal god would be outstretched. And what they do is they take their babies and put them on the arms, the arms of this molten hot metal god, and the babies would basically sizzle to death. Now, on every college campus I go to, I hear atheists saying, well, if there is a good God, why doesn't he stop all the evil in the world? Well, here's a situation where God sees the evil going on and he says, you need to stop it, Israel. Wipe these people out. Now the atheists are complaining about it. Well, you say, well, wait a minute. But they said wipe out everybody, including the children. If, if these are literal commands again. Well, let me ask you another question. First of all, the first question was, when God kills people in the Old Testament, does he do it for no reason? No, we just established it wasn't for no reason. It was for gross immorality, and he wanted them out of the land so he could get the promised people in the promised land to bring forth the promised Messiah to save the world. But secondly, the second question is, when God kills somebody, does he murder them? Is it possible for God to murder anyone? No, God is the creator of life. He is the giver of life. And he can resurrect life. We don't have the authority to murder anyone, to kill anyone, to kill an innocent person, because we're not the creator of life. God is the creator of life. So it's not murder for him. In fact, if Christianity is true, and it is, then people don't really die. They just change location. They just move from this life to the next life. And God can move somebody from this life to the next life anytime he wants. None of us are owed 80 years of pain-free existence here on earth. And then we go, okay, God, you can take me now. No, God can take you out at any time. It's up to him. Remember, life doesn't end at physical death. It continues into eternity. And it's up to God when that happens. We don't have the capacity to do that, but God has the capacity to do that and the right to do that. Now, the, the, the broader question here is, is this different from the New Testament? Well, yeah, it is. Because the Old Testament had an old covenant, which has passed away. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 8.13 says, the old covenant is obsolete. These aren't my words. This is the Bible writer's words. In other words, the Old Testament law from Moses, Moses, from Exodus chapter 20 to right through Deuteronomy, all that Old Testament law applied only to ancient Israel does not apply to people today. And... Let me unpack that further after the break. I won't have time to go into the nuances of it. But we'll we'll cover that after the break. You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Our website, crossexamine.org. And also like our Facebook pages, crossexamine.org and DR Frank Turek. I'm back in just a couple of minutes, so don't go away. College campuses are hostile to the Christian faith, and three out of four young people walk away from the church once they go to college. That's why we go to college campuses and present I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist in the United States and even all over the world. When we do this, 
we don't charge students a dime. That's why we need your financial support. In fact, over the past couple of years, we've been able to grow dramatically because of your generous support. And 100% of your donations go to ministry. Zero percent go to building. So when you give to Cross-Examined, you'll be giving to help us go reach young people where they are. Would you consider giving today? Thank you so much, and thank you so much for what you've done already. All right, we're answering a question regarding the differences in the Old and the New Covenants. And uh, one of the questions had to do with the fact that the Old Testament seemed to command, at least God commanded the death of some people. What about, is that parallel to the New? Well, actually, if you think about it, God did command the death of some people in the New Testament, too. That had to be uh, Ananias and Sapphira, who had lied to the Holy Spirit. You see Acts chapter 5, I believe it is, 4 or 5. I think it's 5. So, look, God is the creator of life. He can take life at any point. It's up to him. People don't really die. They just change location. But let me answer this question a little bit more robust way, because this is a, a source of confusion, I think, for many people. In fact, many, not only many are many Christians confused about it. Atheists seem to think that, you know, we believe everything in the Old Testament is binding today. No, we don't. Now, if you want to get a great book that you'll use over and over again, I want to highly recommend a book written by my co-author, Dr. Norman Geiser. He wrote this with uh, Professor Tom Howe, who also teaches at Southern Evangelical Seminary. The book was originally called When Critics Ask. It's been renamed called to, to be called now The Big Book of Bible Difficulties. But you can find it maybe under the old title. It's the same book, When Critics Ask. It's, it's The Big Book of Bible Difficulties. And here's what uh, Geiser and Howe say. I'm going to read part of this, not the whole thing about this idea of, did Jesus come to do away with the law of Moses? And in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus very explicitly says this, do you think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets? I did not come to destroy to fulfill, unquote. Geiser and Howe go on to say this. However, on one occasion, Jesus approved of his disciples when they broke the Jewish law about working on the Sabbath, Mark chapter 2. And Jesus himself apparently did away with the ceremonial law by declaring all meats unclean. Go to Mark 7:19 for that. Jesus' disciples clearly rejected much, much, much of the Old Testament law, including circumcision. You can look at Acts 15, Galatians 5, Galatians 6. Indeed, Paul declared that you are not under law, but under grace. Romans 6:14. And that the, the Ten Commandments engraved in stone have been taken away in Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.14. In fact, let's look at that passage. This, 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 this deserves a little bit more attention. 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He's talking about the glory of the new covenant. And here's what he says in verse 7. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, this is a reference to the Ten Commandments. Came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? The ministry of the Spirit, the new covenant. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but if you go down a little bit further, here's what he says. He says, therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who, who, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while his radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull. 
For to this day, he's talking about the Jews who don't believe. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Do you get that? The old covenant's taken away in Christ. So, what does this mean to us practically? Here's what Geiser and Howe say, again in the book, the big book of Bible difficulties. He says, in the matter of whether the law of Moses is done away with by Christ, confusion results from failing to distinguish several things. Let me mention a couple of them. He says, first of all, there is a confusion of time. During his lifetime, Jesus always kept the law of Moses himself, including offering sacrifices to the Jewish priests, attending Jewish festivals, and eating Passover, the Passover lamb. He did on occasion, however, violate the pharisaical and false traditions that had grown up around the law. When, if you look in Matthew chapter 5, a little bit later in verses 43 to 44, Jesus chides the Pharisees. He says, you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition, Matthew 15, verse 6. In fact, let me pause right here and say, how often do we do that? How often does our tradition drown out the words of God? How often do we put our own tradition above what God says? We've got to be careful. Anyway, Geiser and Howe go on to say this. The verses that indicate the law has been fulfilled refer to after the cross, when there was, quote, neither Jew nor Greek, for you're all one in Christ Jesus, the famous passage, Galatians 3.28. Um, also, he, 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 they, they talk about the confusion in context, and this is very critical, ladies and gentlemen. Again, this is from Geiser and Howe's book, Big Book of Bible Difficulties. He says, even when the moral dimensions of the law are discussed, there is a confusion. For example, not only did Jesus fulfill the moral commands of the law for us, but the national and theocratic context in which God's moral principles were expressed in the Old Testament no longer apply to Christians today. For example, we are not under the commands as Moses expressed them for Israel, since when expressed for them in the Ten Commandments, it has its reward that the Jews would, quote, live long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. It's law, law, law upon the land of Israel, right? That's, that's from one of the Ten Commandments. That's, that's at the end of Exodus 20, uh, 20, verse 12. When the moral principle expressed in this Old Testament commandment is stated in the New Testament, it is expressed in a different context, namely... One that is not national or theocratic, but is personal and universal. For all persons who honor their parents, Paul declares that they will live long on the earth. All right, let me stop right here. It is a different context. Look, Israel was a nation. The laws of the old covenant from Exodus 20 through Deuteronomy and many of the promises in the prophets were promises to the nation of Israel. They're not promises to us today, and they're not laws to us today. Because Christianity is not a nation. Israel is a nation. Now, many of the principles expressed in the, in, the, in the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament and therefore are binding. But they're binding because they're repeated in the New Testament and declared binding. They're not binding because they're in the Ten Commandments, which were written to Israel. So let me continue with what, what Geiser and Howe say. They say, likewise, no longer... Christians are no longer under the commandment of Moses to worship on Saturday for since the resurrection appearances and ascensions, all of which occurred on Sunday, Christians worship on Sunday in, instead. And you can see Acts 20 and first Corinthians 16 for this. In fact, Paul declared 
that Sabbath worship was only an Old Testament shadow of the real substance, which was inaugurated by Christ. In fact, Paul even says, and this is me speaking now, in in Galatians chapter 2, he says, don't let anyone tell you you have to obey any Sabbath or festival day. Why? Because the Sabbath has arrived. Who's the Sabbath? Jesus. Jesus is our rest. We rest in Jesus. So the point here is, is that the Old Testament commands from the Ten Commandments are binding on us because they're repeated in the New Testament, not because they're in the Ten Commandments. Now, the only one that isn't repeated is keep holy the Sabbath. Why? Because the Sabbath has arrived. Jesus has arrived. And then Geiser and Howe say, since even the Ten Commandments as such were expressed in a national Jewish theocratic framework, the New Testament can speak correctly about that which was engraved on stones being taken away in Christ. They go on to say this, as I've just said. However, this does not mean that the moral principles embodied in the Ten Commandments that reflect the very nature of the unchanging God are not still binding on believers today. They are. Indeed, every one of these principles contained in the Ten Commandments is restated in another context in the New Testament, except, of course, for the Sabbath command. Now, this, uh, this analogy here may help you under grasp this better. They say this, Christians today are no more under the 10 commandments as given by Moses to Israel than we are under the Mosaic laws requirement to be circumcised or to bring a lamb to the temple in Jerusalem for sacrifice. The fact that we are bound by similar moral laws against adultery, lying, stealing, and murder are no more proves that we are under the 10 commandments than the fact that there are similar traffic laws in North Carolina and Texas proves that a Texan is under the laws of the, of the or is under the laws of North Carolina. The truth is that when one violates the speed laws in Texas, he has not thereby violated a similar law in North Carolina, nor is he thereby bound by the penalties of such laws in North Carolina. In a like manner, although both the Old and New Testament speak against adultery, nevertheless, the penalty was different. Capital punishment in the Old Testament and only excommunication from the church in the New Testament with the hope of restoration upon repentance. Notice that the, that the, that what they're saying here is that, yeah, they have similar laws. Adultery is wrong in the old Testament, but adultery was punishable by death in the old Testament. It's not punishable by death in the new Testament. It's punishment by excommunication in the new Testament with the hope of restoration and repentance. Why? There's a difference in context in the old Testament. They were under the theocratic rule of God in the new Testament. We're not, the world is not under the theocratic rule of God. And so the, 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 the punishments are different. And so there is a difference. The commands are the same. Thou shalt not commit adultery. But the, but the punishments are different because it's a different context. We're not under the theocratic rule anymore. Now, there could be a number of reasons why the punishment is less severe in the new than the old. In the, in the old, they had much more of a uh, uh, divine... Well, first of all, it's a theocracy, as I mentioned, but they had miracles that they saw over and over again that at least the, the, the people in Israel saw, and they knew God was, in, in a much more robust sense, real to them than, say, perhaps today, we don't see such miracles confirming the theocratic rule of God. Now, I'm not saying we don't see miracles today. We, we, we do. In fact, you have to go back to the several podcasts we did on miracles uh, with Craig Keener and others. What I'm saying is as an expression of God leading a nation like he did Israel, we don't see those kind of miracles today. He's not leading a nation of Christians. 
Okay, so there's a there's a there's a different sort of uh, verification that they had in the Old Testament that Yahweh was leading them than we have today, and God may have had other reasons for changing the penalty. And by the way, interesting point brought up by Dennis Prager. Uh, Prager, as you know, is a, a a Jewish radio host who believes that the Old Testament is true, and uh, he points out in one of his videos that the commands to uh, say stone a disobedient child was actually a moral advance in that culture. In what sense? Because prior to that command, children were considered the property of their parents and they could be killed by their parents without any, any sort of retribution. They could just do so. But under the Jewish law, if you had a disobedient child, you were to bring that, a disobedient teenager, you would bring that before the judges of Israel. You couldn't kill the child. The judges of Israel would have to judge the case. So it took the power out of the parents' hands to kill their child if they wanted to. They had to bring it before a tribunal. And there's no instance in Jewish history where, that we know of anyway, where the tribunal actually said, yeah, this child needs to be stoned. So it's actually a moral advance according to Prager. Interesting point. Anyway, you're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network, our website, crossexamined.org, crossexamined with a D on the end of it.org. We're back in two minutes for our final segment. Don't go away. More questions coming up. If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find more. Just type Cross-Examine or Frank Turek on the search bar. Also, visit our website where we add new videos, articles, and free resources daily. You're listening to Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. We're talking about some of the questions that you have emailed me at hello at crossexamine.org. We were talking a little bit about the difference between the Old and the New Testaments. Uh, the Old Covenant has passed away, and uh, the New Covenant is now in place. The Old Covenant was with Israel. The New Covenant is with the world. And thankfully, there is a New Covenant, and Christ came to bring the New Covenant to us, and he paid the price for our sins, so we trust in him. And out of gratitude for what he's done for us, and we do good works in, in order to uh, help other folks and to be great ambassadors for the Lord so many more people would come into the kingdom. Now, I have another question that was uh, brought up uh, by a man by the name of Jeff, who's very complimentary. Thank you, Jeff. He says, I also listen to Ravi Zacharias. <laughs> what does he know? Come on, Robbie. Whatever Robbie writes, God reads. Jay Warner Wallace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The great detective who's been on the program many times. And is also, by the way, one of the teachers in the Fearless Faith course coming up. Click on online courses on crossexamine.org and you can be a part of it. He says, I listen to many other apologists of the day. He says, the one issue I have is many of these apologists like to point out that we are saved by grace, which I 100% believe in and I'm 100% thankful for. However, I sometimes say to myself, so what if we're saved by grace? That doesn't mean Christianity is true, or does it? Well, no, it doesn't necessarily mean it's true, Jeff, but it is, uh, when people say this, when I say it, it, I'm not trying to show that Christianity is true. That's a theological point that uh, is true, if Christianity is true. But 
The fact that we're saved by grace doesn't necessarily mean it's true. Although this is the big distinguishing factor, one of the big distinguishing factors between Christianity and every other world religion. You see, every other world religion is you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to work your way to God in order to have your good deeds outweigh your bad, and you never really know if you're saved or not. And it's all your works that are going to get you somehow owed something by God. Christianity is exactly opposite. You don't do this and you don't do that. God does it all. All other, other world religions are do this and do that. Christianity, it's just done. Jesus does it all. We're not building a stairway to heaven. Christianity is a stairway from heaven. He comes to earth, lives the perfect life in our place, takes the punishment due us on himself, rises from the dead to show that he truly is God and that one day we'll have a resurrection body like his. And by trusting in what he's done, we can have our sins forgiven and we can be given his righteousness. We're saved by grace. We don't owe, or let me put it another way. God doesn't owe us anything. It's total grace. It's God who has done all the work for us. Now, you would think if there is a being out there known as love, and there is, because love exists. So again, reasoning from effect to cause if love is the supreme value, then there must be a standard that objectifies or that is the objective grounding for that value, God's nature. And if that being is the grounding or an, and that being actually does exist and we know it exists because that being does exist because we're reasoning again from effect to cause, we would expect that being to try and rescue us if we're in trouble. And so Christianity does make sense from that perspective. In other words, that seems to be a, a mild argument for Christianity and Christianity's favor. I wouldn't use this as wouldn't, wouldn't be one of my primary arguments for Christianity, but it does seem to be kind of a mild way of saying, you know, this seems to make sense that if love exists, the source of love would come and try and rescue us. So it, it, it's in line with what we, we would expect from a God who is love that grace would be the way he'd save us. Just like, as John Lennox puts it, if you truly love somebody and you want to marry them, you would just marry them. You wouldn't say to them, look, you know, if, if you could demonstrate that you're good for me for the next 40 years and you, you give me things that I want, then, then I'll see about loving you. That wouldn't be love. But if you say, look, I love you unconditionally, that if you, I'm going to trust in you, if you trust in me, we'll get married and we'll be in this together, that, that would be a, a loving relationship, not one that's built on all these conditions. You have to do X, Y, and Z in order for me to love you. That's not truly love. Anyway, love is you're seeking what's best for the other person and you want to protect the other person. As Paul says, love always protects. This is why, by the way, uh, the cultural idea that love is you must approve whatever I want to do is, is basically an evil, if you think about it. Because no, if I approve something that you want to do that's evil, that's going to hurt you or others, that's not loving. I'm complicit. I'm enabling you to go down the wrong road to hurt yourself and others. That's not loving. That's the exact opposite of loving. In any event, I digress. The point here is, is that grace is what we would expect from a being of love. And as Lennox puts it, he says, and I'm paraphrasing him here, he said, 
people would look at a relationship based on if you do all these things for me, I'll see about marrying you. We would say that 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 relationship is not a relationship built on love. That's pretty crass. But a lot of people look at God that way. They look at God and say, well, God is expecting all these things of me. And if I do all these things that somehow God is going to going to accept me later. How is that a God of love? That's not. And, and by the way, um, Christianity is the world religion that gave us the God of love. Every other world religion, God is either arbitrary. Even Islam says God is arbitrary. Whatever Allah does is good. Not Allah is good. Whatever Allah does is good. The pagan gods, they weren't gods of love. They were capricious. They demanded stuff of you. So all God wants is your heart. And if you give him your heart, then you'll want to serve him. Then you'll want to do good works for him. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, we're prepared to do good works after we've accepted the free gift of salvation. So, Jeff, when Ravi or J. Warner Wallace or other apologists, if I ever say, well, God is, we're saved by grace, I'm not, that's not really an argument for Christianity. Although, as I said, I think it's kind of a mild argument for Christianity. There are other arguments. It's just, it's just pointing out a theological truth that um, is, is very attractive uh, for Christianity up against the other world religions, and we would expect a God of love to do that for us. All right. Uh, another question from Brian Pollock asked a question about, uh, he says, I'm listening to the predestination free will podcast that I did uh, last week. And he was predestined to listen to it, by the way. Uh, he says, your description of God's relationship to time is how I've always understood it and explained it to other people. I also listen to reasonable faith and the Defender Sunday School podcast, and I've heard William Lane Craig discuss A theory and B theory of time multiple times, as have I, Brian. <laughs> I've listened to Craig quite a bit. In fact, if you're, if you're listening to this podcast, you ought to be listening to Dr. Craig's podcast as, way, as well over there at reasonablefaith.org. Um, and Brian says, I can't seem to reconcile either of these two views with the view of God and time that you and I both hold. Can you connect the dots for me, please? Now, um, I'm not sure why these can't be reconciled, Brian, but let me take a stab at it. And by the way, I'm an amateur at this uh, A theory and B theory of time. If you want uh, the, the robust formal definition of these two theories, you'll have to go to Dr. Craig. I'm standing on his shoulders with regard to this. But generally, the A theory, as I recall, is just the common view we have of time, that time doesn't, things don't happen all at once, there's a progression. Whereas the B theory of time is that everything that happened in the past, present, and future is actualized right now. Um, now, I don't think and I've heard Craig say this. He says, I see no reason to take the B theory of time. I, there's, there's no reason that compels me to accept the B theory of time. The, the common sense view of time, the A theory, seems to be uh, the theory that makes sense. And, and absent compelling reasons to adopt the B theory, I'm just going to stay with the A theory. Uh, I mean, why, why take a theory which seems counterintuitive? Now, in my view, I think God is outside of time. Now, Dr. Craig would disagree with this. He would say that once time, once God created time, 
uh, that God cre- God entered time, so to speak. Now, I, I don't think that's the orthodox view of Christianity. I'm not saying Craig is unorthodox on this. It's just his view. I'm just saying that the historical orthodox view is that God is outside of time. He transcends time. He doesn't enter time. His effects enter time, but God in his being is not inside of time. Jesus in his human nature is inside of time, but not his divine nature. Okay, The effects of God are in time, but God himself, his being is not in time. He's a timeless being. He doesn't change as things do in time. He's the unchangeable being outside of time. Now, I don't see any problem with that viewpoint. Uh, I don't see how that creates a problem with the view of, of the biblical view of time or the A theory or B theory of time. I think the B theory of time doesn't comport with the, with the Bible. Uh, and as I said a minute ago, I agree with Dr. Craig on this. There's no reason to adopt the B theory when the A theory makes perfect sense. So maybe, Brian, I'm not understanding the question completely, but I just think that God, or I don't understand your nuance on the question. I think God is outside of time, and that means he knows everything. He's he's omniscient. He knows what we're going to do before we do it. That's one reason God can predestine us, and we also have free will. Uh, The example I used last week was just because you're watching a football game that's already been played and you know what's going to happen, does that mean you're causing the players to do what they do on the field? They don't have free will because you know what the outcome's going to be? No, they still have free will, even though you know what they're going to do. Same thing is true with God. He knows what we're going to do, uh, and and he predestined it to happen by electing to create this universe, but we still have free will, even though he knows what we're freely going to choose. Anyway, you can go back and listen to last week's podcast, ladies and gentlemen, if you're predestined to do so, <laughs> and uh, learn more about that my view anyway on predestination free will. And uh, in fact, I I hope to have John Lennox on the program because he has a fabulous new book on it. I've got to get to myself. I've heard from others. It's very good. So I'll do that and have him on and we'll talk more. We're predestined to. Anyway, thanks for being on. Don't forget about uh, I'll be in San Jose, California this uh, tonight and tomorrow. All the details on our website. And also don't forget the Fearless Faith course. You can be live with me, Jay Warner Wallace and Mike Adams. Go to crossexamine.org and click on online courses. Hope to see you there. I'm Frank Turk. See you next week. God bless. We work hard to create great content and deliver truth and valuable insights to all of our cross-examined podcast listeners. If you agree, take 30 seconds out of your busy schedule to leave us a five-star rating so more people like you can find us. Just look for the Cross-Examined official podcast, three words on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. We are truly grateful for your support. 